0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Gavin Ortland. Gavin is a senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai, California. We talk about a few of his new books today, including Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals and Finding the Right Hills to Die On on Theological Triage. Uh, Gavin is a good friend and one of the most patient and kind and long-suffering people that I know in general and also when it comes to theology. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Gavin. As always, Church Grammar is brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find all of their latest offerings and new books. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that Bible translation, including the Ancient Faith Study Bible that recently won the Evangelical Publishers Award for Best Bible of the Year, which is something I was proud of as being one of the editors on that project. So check that out and everything else they have going on. And now, my conversation with Gavin. But first, no big deal. All right, so I have Gavin Portland on the line. Gavin, thanks so much for hopping on today.
1: Hey, great to be with you.
0: We had a uh, recorded version of this a long time ago that uh, has been, for various reasons, lost in um, the uh, annals of podcast history. So I'm glad that we're actually able to get back on and and do this again with really more things to talk about because of all these books you have coming out.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to talk. I am charging you interest for each year that goes by without that other one. (laughs) So I'll send you a bill. uh, Okay, well.
0: Uh, I'll see if there's a stimulus plan being put out right now that that can pay for this kind of thing. So, All right, well, Gavin, the two things mainly I want to talk about today, you've got two new books out, one uh, called Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals with Crossway, and then a, a second one uh, with Crossway as well called Finding the Right Hills to Die on, the case for theological triage. And when I talk about this to students, especially in theology class, I like to sort of talk about how retrieval and triage kind of go together. Because there's this, there's this aspect in which we are having this kind of humility to go back and look at the early church and look at what they believed, um, while at the same time acknowledging, first of all, we're not the only people who've ever thought about God, so there's humility there, of course. Uh, but also, it, it helps us kind of center ourselves on what is the most important thing. You know, What are the kind of core foundations of the faith versus uh, some of the things that we squabble about today, right? So I think that, that maybe that's where we can start when we talk about theological retrieval, um, you have a few chapters at the beginning of the book on, you know, can evangelicals retrieve theology? How do we do it? And then what are some benefits and perils? So kind of just talk through that generally, you know, what, it, what does it look like for evangelicals to retrieve theology and not be quote unquote, Bapto Catholics or whatever. Um, mm. And how does that actually work out in the way that we do our theology?
1: Yeah, sure. And first, just to your point there, I think you made a really good point that uh, retrieval and triage often go together. And that's certainly been my experience. And I've often used the metaphor of travel for doing theological retrieval, which is simply, if people aren't familiar with that term, it simply means um, using historical theology uh, to the end of doing contemporary constructive theology. So just looking back at what the great theologians of the past have said as a stimulus and help for doing theology today. And um, I've often thought of that as similar to travel in the sense that you're getting outside of your own culture and your own framework and considering how to look at the world from a different angle. Mm. And one of the things that you often notice is that there's actually different battles being fought in different times. And there may be a different sort of bandwidth of acceptability for different issues at different times. And so, in the in the triage book, um, one of the things I'm trying to do on some of the third-rank doctrines is say, you know, these haven't always been hills to die on for the church. And, and many times, uh, there was much less emphasis placed on the doctrine that we might really emphasize, or vice versa. There might be something that's been really foundational for Christians that we tend to neglect today. Um, but in terms of the question of just how... Uh, can we do retrieval? I think this has been one of my own hesitations. Of if we're Protestants and if we're specifically evangelical Protestants, um, is there some sort of compromise if we're retrieving, for example, medieval theology or even the theology of the Church Fathers? Or if not, if it's if that's too strong to say compromise, is is, is there a sense in which that's kind of a, a second step after? engaging our own Protestant tradition and I've always wrestled with that and I think a lot of us grow up in evangelical churches with this idea of the 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 fall of the church you know the lights sort of went out in church history at some point early on sometimes with the conversion of Constantine in the fourth century and nothing good is happening throughout the middle ages and then finally, with Luther, the church is sort of reborn. And I've just changed so much in my views on these things. And and the biggest factor has been the reformers themselves and just seeing how lowercase c Catholic they were right. in their sensibilities and in their instincts and in the way they cast their efforts. So that's encouraged me. And that's what chapter one of the retrieval book is all about, that I think you can be a Protestant Christian and still own all 2,000 years of church history as your own tradition.
0: Yeah, so what does that look like practically? You talk about sort of how do evangelicals do that? Are there certain types of um, benefits to it, dangers to it, um, some methodological uh, issues that come up? How does that actually work practically?
1: Well, one of the things that I think is important is if we are doing retrieval as Protestants, we do want to do it under the authority of Scripture. So, Scripture w- will be the norm uh, that we ultimately look to to adjudicate any particular issue. So, nothing that we're retrieving is going to be a sort of infallible, binding um, rule for our faith or, or life. At the same time, the fact that something isn't infallible doesn't mean that it's not necessarily useful. So, I think sometimes Protestants throw out the baby with the bathwater and thinking, well, if the scripture is our our final court of appeal, it's our highest authority, therefore it's all we need to engage. And I don't think that that is the case. And I think, again, the, the practice of the reformers themselves was very inclusive. I mean, they really utilized the church fathers to establish their points of doctrine and, and where they were different from their uh, Roman Catholic opponents. In the counter-reformation the response from Roman Catholic theologians was that the Protestant movement is novel. They were, they were charged with being novel. That is new. And the response of the reformers wasn't just to appeal to scripture. They were saying, actually, no, uh, we're better rooted on most issues in the church fathers than, than you are. So I think that kind of helps us today as we think about retrieval. Um, I would say just one kind of parenthetical comment here for why this topic is important to me and why it's not just an academic thing, I think. For some people listening, they may wonder, you know, practically, why why does this matter? I've had a lot of friends and even some family members move from evangelical churches to Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, and I've spent a lot of time in conversation with them trying to understand what is uh, at play with that? What are the causes of that? And I think that whatever else it it may boil down to in each particular case, I do think one cause is often kind of a sense of restlessness and and rootlessness that a lot of evangelicals feel, especially in our culture right now, where there's such a a sense of um, a loss of transcendence, kind of a sense of emancipation from the past and our, our individualism. And I think a lot of people are looking for something um, transcendent by which to sort of organize life. And I think one of the ways people are trying to meet that need is by history, being more rooted in history. And I, I do think a lot of evangelical churches and institutions um, can learn from that. And, you know, what I'm arguing in the book is that we don't need to go to Rome or Constantinople to do retrieval. We can do that as Protestants. But I do think we need to be humble enough to listen to those criticisms and just consider, you know, how can we do this better? So the book outlines a couple of particular benefits that we might get from retrieval, a couple of particular uh, dangers that might be available to us. Um, The benefits I I describe in three metaphors, if I can remember them all here off the top of my head. Um, I describe retrieval as kind of like going to school uh, traveling, and going to a counselor. So going to school is like learning. Um, traveling is is like seeing a different culture, which is different than just learning. It's There's uh, kind of a, a, a chance to to question your own presuppositions, and then going to see a counselor is where you're going to get an external and more objective perspective on maybe your own family history or maybe some of your own quirks. And those are three ways that I've experienced retrieval to work. You know, you you find yourself diving into Saint Augustine or or someone like that, and you find that it it gives you perspective on yourself and on your own theology, kind of in similar ways to to those metaphors when you travel or when you see a counselor or when you go to school. It gives you new categories. It gives you new sensitivities. Um, and I've just become a big believer in it. And I think it's I think it's needed. I think it's an important uh, task in our current cultural moment. And then as evangelicals with some of the areas where we may be weak in our theology.
0: Yeah, that's good. And I think, you know, we, part of the reason why we started the center for Baptist renewal was obviously there, you know, we all had this sort of interest in patristic theology and and early church and how it had shaped us uh, as evangelicals, as pastors and professors, and even when we were seminary students, but also, we knew so many people in our churches and classmates and colleagues who did exactly what you said. They became Anglican or Catholic or whatever in this sense of we want to move closer to the history. We want to get more in line with the church. And on the one hand, I understand that. Um, you know I understand the appeal of that. But what we wanted to try to say is, hey, you can still be a Baptist or, or frankly, you can still be an evangelical in whatever stripe and still love the early church and still mm-hmm. be rooted in the early church. Cause as you said, you know, the church didn't start in 1517 uh, and Luther even acknowledged that. So there's a sort mm-hmm. of uh, bifurcation here that we always joke um, that the church didn't start there, but that it started all the way back, you know, before that. And so I think that's a good, um, a good practical application you have there because, you know, I- I've seen that a lot too. When I was in my uh, grad program, we had several people who, left evangelicalism to become Catholic or, or to other traditions for that very reason. And I was trying to tell them, Hey, you know, you can stay, you know, we're, we're, if you read the early Baptists, you know, they're really connected to the tradition, but frankly, there wasn't a lot of examples to point to. And so I'm glad mm. that your book exists because now we have a good example to point to.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And what you guys are doing with the center for Baptist renewal is so, I think it's so needed just for the reasons we're saying, I, I've often thought of it in in both ways, the external, uh, pressures upon the church from our culture are pushing us in certain ways, and then at the same time, uh, within the church, there's so many um, areas of of weakness, and the the older I get, the more I have a sense that um, evangelicalism, for all its many virtues, and I'm an evangelical and I'm grateful for evangelicalism, but it also has some eccentricities or just some areas where we have some blind spots and points where we need to continue to grow and develop in uh, kind of areas where we're not naturally set up to succeed. And so I think retrieval is just one way for us to mature and develop and grow. And hopefully we'll uh, see less people who feel like they need to step out of evangelicalism to be more historically rooted. Because as you guys are pointing out, um, and as my book is trying to point out, actually at the heart of Protestantism as a movement, Is the desire to be as inclusive as possible in the best way toward church history? Uh, The Protestants were not trying to start over. They were trying to go back to the purity of the early church.
0: All right, so you have uh, next year you have a book on Augustine and creation coming out uh, with IVP. Uh, called Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. So here's an example where you're doing uh, retrieval of Augustine's Doctrine of, of Creation. I love the tagline for it ancient wisdom for current controversy, right? Because creation, creationism is certainly uh, a controversy in evangelicalism today. And, you know, the point I don't want, uh, when we have this conversation, we don't really even need to get into, I think, uh, what's your position on old, young earth, what's more right or whatever, because there's sort of like this broader concern that Augustine has. And even the other church fathers, if you read you know, sort of their doctrines of creation, they're not really having these conversations. You know, they're not, they're, it, sometimes you might see it pop up here and there, but there are a lot bigger issues going on there. So, so as you're thinking about retrieving Augustine's doctrine of creation, what are some of the big picture ideas that, that he has that will sort of help us get beyond that um, you know, current cultural theological issues that we're having right now?
1: Yeah, I've often thought of Augustine as a helpful kind of voice on this doctrine. As you point out, it is such a controversial one. And in some ways, while the, the areas where we have controversy, those are important, and I don't want to downplay their importance, um, as you're pointing out, um, they're not actually at the heart of what is distinctive about a Christian worldview in the ways that, that some other parts of the doctrine of creation are. And Augustine and many others in the early church, I think, are helpful to bring into dialogue with some of the current uh, discussions on creation, because they were fighting over things like um, ex nihilo, that Mm -hmm. the world is made from nothing, and the goodness of creation, which is so clearly emphasized in Genesis chapter 1, and the contingency of creation. And those are things that are more Sort of anchored into a Christian worldview, I think. You know, the, the idea of ex nihilo is so important for preserving God's transcendence. I was shocked to discover even some some early Christians didn't affirm, at least at some points in their careers, ex nihilo. Even Justin Martyr. It took the Church a little bit of time to really uh, solidify on that. Whereas today we tend to take that for granted. But if you don't have the world made from nothing and you have some kind of system like what Plato envisioned, where you've got sort of this this shapeless matter that that, uh, the creator is forming, rather than bringing into existence from nothing, it actually – I mean, that's extremely foundational for how we understand the creator-creation relationship. So I think it's just helpful in light of our current controversies to see the bigger picture of creation. And it helps us kind of major on the majors and minor on the minors, as opposed to major on the minors and, and minor on the majors, which yeah. is sometimes what we do today. So that's one of the things I, I hope that book will, will help uh, encourage.
0: By the way, I'm looking at it on the IVP website right now, and I think it has one of the best covers I've ever seen on a book. Like they <laughs> really nailed that cover.
1: Yeah, they, they did such a good job. I, I was so grateful for their, their, uh, their work on that.
0: People say that academics don't care about covers, but I disagree. I think uh, I think <laughs> like a cover like that gets your attention. It's beautiful. It looks like uh, whoever put it together actually cares <laughs> about the book. So right. That alone should sell you at least five copies, I feel like. <laughs> well, speaking on majoring on the majors, minoring on the minors, let's talk about uh, finding the right hills to die on, your book on triage. Um, why do we need to do triage? Maybe that's the first question. That's the first question that you get into in the book. Why should we care about this? Why can't we just sort of pick and choose what we like and don't like, and, you know, kind of batten down the hatches and decide what we think is most important, and, uh, you know, judge everybody else by our own theology.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, the way that I have thought about this in trying to encourage people with this topic is to take the particular term, triage, off the table at at the beginning of the conversation. We can come back to that. It's a really helpful metaphor, but... Sometimes that strikes people as a really technical term. And um, all we're really getting at is how to uh, have wisdom and humility and love in the way we navigate theologically. And the reason that's so important is in the midst of our culture, which is getting, it seems, more polarized, and it's getting harder for people to have dialogue across ideological differences— Uh, I am saddened that so many times, and I've been guilty of this myself, as the church, we're not an alternative to that. But so many times as the church, we get pulled into that polarization, and whether we're looking on social media or we're seeing church splits, um, we have the sense that um, sometimes the church can be just as polarized. We can do uh, just as poorly at loving our Those we disagree with, and having humility towards those we disagree with, and having patient dialogue. And the reason it's so important is it affects the kingdom of God. When churches split unnecessarily, um, that has a huge impact upon uh, how the gospel is experienced and perceived by those around us. Uh, It has a huge impact upon the fruitfulness of our lives and ministries. When we, you know, Jesus said by this. All men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Uh, He also prayed in John 17 that we would be one, we would be united as followers of Jesus so that the world would know that, uh, that that the Father has sent the Son. And so I think actually that the way we think about maintaining unity with other Christians as much as we can is actually very practical, very urgently important. Um, I really, really care deeply about this. So uh, the term theological triage is simply a medical term that I think Al Mohler was the first to use. It's uh, sort of a metaphor for just ranking doctrines. And ranking doctrines helps us because it enables us to say, you know, some doctrines are, we have to split over Uh, because if we don't split over them, we're not being faithful to Christ. But not every doctrine is like that. I mean, there's many doctrines where Christians can disagree, and yet we still love one another, accept one another, can even serve together. If we treated every doctrine the exact same, we would increasingly fragment because we'd be dividing any time we had a difference of opinion on something. So triage is simply a way to try to help us uh, kind of negotiate um how do we deal with our differences while also maintaining unity? And how do we determine what are the, the hills to die on? What are the hills not to die on? I really care about this because um, it, it's just uh, it, it's important for us to not divide unnecessarily. That's the that's the shortest way I could put it.
0: Yeah. So when we talk about this, you know, when I when I teach uh, the idea of triage to students, I usually say. Um, You know, try to kind of walk through, here's what's primary, here's what's secondary, here's what's tertiary, and I think Moeller kind of laid out the idea, primary is what all Christians should agree on, secondary is what, you know, different denominations can agree on, what separates denominations, and tertiary might be what separates people within denominations or something like that, right? So when I talk to them, I say, you know, a hardcore fundamentalist treats everything as primary, you know, like the resurrection and what clothes you wear to church are, you know, uh, of (laughs) equal importance. And then, you know, like a real true liberal, uh, treats everything as tertiary, which kind of like, eh, whatever, as long as you're generally in the ballpark, you know, that kind of thing. So I try to help them think through kind of the two polar polarization, but how do you explain, um, how do we, how do we find out what is primary? How do we understand what is primary and how do we sort of work through the wisdom of doing that so that we aren't treating secondary or tertiary issues as primary or, the other side being kind of a squishy middle, where basically, hey, as long as you love Jesus, it doesn't really matter what you think.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, in, in the start of chapter four, I give two longer list of criteria that have eight or ten points, and then I condense those down into four questions. And obviously, these, you know, this is not uh, this is not like a math process where you just crunch the numbers and then you <laughs> know the outcome. It takes, there's nuances involved, and one of the things I try to emphasize in this book is that, um, you know, different doctrines can play out differently in different contexts. So there's a need for kind of caution in how we assign a number or label to a particular issue. Nonetheless, uh, the four questions I propose as kind of the shortest list of criteria for determining where you might rank a doctrine would be how clear is the Bible on it? How important is this doctrine to the gospel? Uh, What is the testimony of the historical church concerning it? And then what is the effect of this doctrine on the church's practice today? Those are maybe not the only questions that need to be asked, but I think those are four uh, initial questions that can be really helpful for starting to make those judgments and then hopefully, as we work through that, um, the, the church's historical testimony is not at the same level as Scripture. This goes back to what we were saying a moment ago. Uh, for Protestants, the Scripture is the norming norm. But it's helpful to know what other Christians—and it's, it's an expression of humility to know, uh, to want to know— what have other Christians thought about this topic? So that's one way we can start to answer this question. And as I say, there'll be lots of nuances along the way.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I have heard uh, a few times is a sort of idea of, you know, take a modern example like sexual ethics, for example. You know, that's one that's kind of front and center for a lot of people's minds based on our culture, based on, you know, pastoring churches and, and dealing with young people and things like that. So you hear things like, well, you know, the Nicene Creed doesn't deal with sexual ethics. So you know, that's not an important core doctrine. It's not a creedal doctrine. So therefore, we can disagree about some of those kind of things as long as we all agree on the Trinity, for example. Um, now, sexual ethics is one example of of many, right? Uh, but this yeah. idea that if the Nicene Creed or something like that doesn't speak to it, then it doesn't really matter. And my rebuttal, and you, and you can respond to this afterward, you'll probably say it uh, better than me. My rebuttal is typically something like, you know, if you disagree on 2,000 years of church history, you better have a really good biblical argument for it. Right, And this is something that, even if it's not in the quote-unquote creeds, sexual ethics, for example, have been pretty pretty clear in terms of marriage and, and monogamy and these kind of things, and man and woman relationships and whatever else. This has been pretty clear in church history for 2,000 years. And then if you get into scripture, you've got to do a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics, regardless of your tradition or method, to get to the point to where you're denying some of these things but how do you how do you talk through and you know that's one issue but there are others of sort of okay just because the creeds or whatever don't necessarily speak directly to this that doesn't mean that the church hasn't had a general consensus on it
1: mm-hmm. Well one thing that I find helpful to point out is that the creeds were written in response to particular heresies and issues that were being worked through by the church at that time right? So, there's a whole range of doctrines that are not addressed or are only tangentially addressed by the creeds. And one way that I found helpful to draw attention to this, to say, you know, it's really not fair to say, uh, unless it's explicit in, say, the Apostles and Nicene and Athanasian creeds, then it's not important, is to draw attention to an issue I know that my friend will care about and say, that, but that isn't in the creeds and say, well, therefore, we can. So one example would be if, if we wanted to say, well, look, the creeds don't say anything about racism. Therefore, racism, we can kind of, it's not that important. We can kind of go either way on whether racism is wrong or not. Now, almost nobody is going to go along with that. Immediately, they'll start to realize the point more quickly than if I just try to explain it in a more propositional way that yeah. – Uh, oh yeah, the creeds really aren't an exhaustive manual, especially when it comes to ethical practices and issues. They're really focused upon the doctrines of the Trinity and and Christology, and then there's other things that are expressed in them as well, to a degree. So um, I think this would be an example of where we need to be careful to use the creeds in light of the purpose for which they were written, and that will involve uh, considering the whole as you were pointing out, the whole council of scripture, uh, as well as the creeds, as well as other questions we might need to ask. So what,
0: what would you say is a doctrine that evangelicals don't treat as primary, although they should? And then what's maybe an example of something that we treat as primary that may not necessarily be primary, based on how you would kind
1: of view the triage of it? Okay. And I'll stay out of creation stuff here too, so this interview doesn't get uh, lost lost in the shuffle. <laughs> um, but no uh, I could mention, yeah, I could mention uh, a couple examples. So on the first part, something that we don't treat as important, but I think is important. I wouldn't necessarily say it's primary in the way that the deity of Christ is primary, something like that. But I think that there are various aspects of the doctrine of God, and the two that I often mention are the doctrine of divine simplicity and the doctrine of divine impassibility. These are the ideas that God doesn't have any parts on the one hand, and secondly, he's impassable, he's not subject to passions in the way that we are. And um, I, am, I continually hear many evangelicals today treat these as optional Now, you know, if someone wanted to make a case that these things are wrong or that they're often misunderstood or something like that, of course, you know, we should be open to considering that case. What what I hear more and that is a little more troubling is a posture towards these doctrines that um, seems to take kind of a me and my Bible approach to evaluating them and is very quick to, and I've heard many evangelicals dismiss both of these doctrines without enough appreciation for why, historically, they've been so important. Because both of these doctrines are are pretty foundational to the doctrine of God throughout the ages. Um, And I I don't see these as first rank in the sense that if you deny them, you're into the land of heresy. I wouldn't say that. I would say, though, that they're they're pretty important. Um, And throughout church history, they've been pretty universal. And so if someone wants to dispute them, at the very least— I think they need to engage the historical backlog of these doctrines and not just say, well, I don't see it in Scripture, therefore it's not important. Um, That would be an example of a doctrine where I think greater sensitivity to our uh, historical theology would be useful for us. And it would probably make us more cautious before disagreeing, or at the very least, it would make us disagree with them or reject them in a more careful and thorough way. Um, And I, for one, think both of them are very, very important. Um, So that would be one. And in the other direction, something that we uh, tend to elevate too much, I would say in the realm of eschatology or the doctrine of last things, there are some things that are really uh, foundational, really important. I would say the, the final... Really, I think of four things as kind of at at the heart of a Christian view of the end times. One is the second coming of Jesus. Another is final judgment. Another is uh, final resurrection. And another is the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth and the banishment of the unrighteous to hell. And those are really kind of cardinal Christian doctrines. And I think this is another area where sometimes we... Don't put as much focus on those ones, and we put a lot of focus on what is more in the second rank, or I would argue the third rank category, and that would be what's the identity and nature of the Antichrist, what's the timing and nature of the Great Tribulation, of the Olivet Discourse, um, the Millennium, and other details concerning the rapture, the nature of the rapture, the timing of the rapture. All of those things are very important, uh, and that's something to always emphasize: is that third rank doesn't mean unimportant. It just right, means right. we don't need to necessarily divide or start a different denomination over it. And I, I do think we get things backwards in eschatology a lot. I think sometimes we put all the focus on these these third rank issues, as I see them, and so little on the first rank. So that'd be another area I think we, we should just be very mindful just to try to set the dials right and put the right emphasis upon the right area.
0: Yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, too, because as you're talking, it reminds me, you know, when you talked about simplicity and impassibility, for example, you know, I think it's Khaled Anatalias who talks about how uh, homoousios in the early church is not just kind of a set of affirmations, but it's almost like a, it's almost its own grammar or method, right? That it's not just like, oh, I affirm it, but it's what do you mean by when you affirm it, right? So when you talk about the mm-hmm. doctrine of God, it's not just well, I affirm the Nicene Creed, that's great, but then there are those secondary, okay, when you affirm the Nicene Creed, are you affirming sort of the logic and method of of what's behind the statements, right? And so when you think about triage, you know what's what's at least been difficult for me in teaching theological method, particularly in the church and in uh, the university setting, is trying to help them think through. It's not just, oh, I affirm this list of things. But rather theology is is very much a way of thinking right it's a way of making judgments uh, upon the text it's a way of thinking through in some sense triage right this idea of like okay i know how to tell when something is uh, important and foundational in scripture and when there's a passage or an idea in passage that is clearly secondary or clearly um, something that we can disagree on so do you have any tips for people on thinking through sort of a theological method to go, okay, I don't just affirm the Trinity, but but how do I affirm it? Or I don't just affirm eschatology, but how do I affirm it? And how do I work through what's important and what's not important?
1: Yeah, I really like the way you said that, speaking of some of these things is, is not just a uh, something to check off, but it inhabits the whole way we not only do theology, but the way we follow Jesus. Right. And the way I've talked about it in the book is that um, every church and every uh, institution, Christian institution, ministry, even individual Christians, we have our own sort of theological culture. Um, we have sort of unspoken tendencies. We have instincts. We have a sort of mentality about how we approach theology. And, for example, Tim Keller is always saying, you know, the statement, doctrine is unimportant, is itself a doctrine. And I think that's true, and I think that the mentality of kind of a minimalism, that itself is a certain theological culture, a set set of instincts theologically. So I find it helpful to um, think of it like this. You know, all of us who are followers of Jesus, we want our lives to be as fruitful as as they can be. We want to be faithful to him. We want to follow him and and serve him effectively, and uh, for our lives to really count. And part of what will make the difference with that is how we navigate theology, our, our, our theological mentality. It's not everything, but it's something. It will affect our prayer life. It'll affect when we're sharing the gospel with someone. What are the points that we emphasize? How do we respond to the, the pushback of our culture on certain things that are unpopular? When we're preaching, how do we bring certain doctrines to bear on practical issues? Um, it's as practical as can be imagined, and uh, the book on theological triage is just try is trying to help. Think of it as a uh, written for people in the trenches. You know, they're trying to figure out in real time and in real decisions, being the church, uh, following Jesus in the particular cultural moment we live in. How do we have a healthy mentality about doctrine? And that's really one way of getting at this. So hopefully that helps people see, oh, okay, this isn't just about checking off the boxes. This is about the whole attitude with which we even think about uh, theology as a whole, including Mm -hmm. this very topic.
0: Well, Gavin, thanks for this conversation. I I think if uh, people—I'm not just saying this because I'm your friend or because I'm talking to you, but I really mean this. I think if people were to get your two books on retrieval and triage and read them together— uh, the church would be in a lot better place. Sermons would be better. Uh, theological writing would be better. And I think even, as you said, the way people pray and the way people uh, share their faith will be better. So I'm really grateful that you wrote these two books because I think there are two, two issues, at least in my mind, that are just front and center of evangelicalism and churches in terms of um, some corrections and encouragements that we need.
1: Thanks a lot, Brandon. I really appreciate that. Uh, grateful to talk. And one just quick uh, thing that might be worth mentioning is the, the book on triage is a little bit more on the popular level as it's written, or at least a little more general in the audience. Mm-hmm. And the one on retrieval is a little bit more on the academic side. So just for people to be aware, if they're uh, looking for one to start with and they're less interested in the academic side, the triage one is a little bit more uh, accessible. So, just for people to be aware of that.
0: Yeah, that's a good word. All right, thanks, Gavin, so much uh, for the conversation.
1: Okay, thanks a lot, Brian. Enjoyed it.